in our study of the parables of Jesus, one of the things that I've stressed is the, the place of context. And one might argue that that goes without saying, but I think it needs to be said anyway. The context is important to understand what was intended by Jesus when he spoke these words. One pastor put it this way, and you may have heard this, that a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, if you don't have context, you can make the text say anything that you want. That is why we tackled, or tried to last Sunday, the parable of the dishonest manager at the beginning of chapter 16. In the parable, there is a man who has wasted the master's possessions. He finds out that he must give an accounting of his managing. Knowing that if that happens, or when that happens, he will be fired, he is concerned about his future. He's not strong enough to dig, to earn money, and he is ashamed to beg. So he comes up with a plan in which he cancels significant portions of the debt of those who owe his master. He does this so that when he is fired, we read, people will welcome me into their houses. When he does this, the master commends him for acting shrewdly. And Jesus makes the application that the people of this generation are more shrewd in how they deal with the matters of this world than are the people of the light. Jesus goes on to say, and what we could see is a great reversal so common to the parables of Jesus. If you look at verse number 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. As I mentioned last week, verse number nine, which I think is perhaps the most difficult in the text, has been paraphrased by one author as put yourself in a good position through your use of money, which so easily leads you astray, so that when this age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. In the verses that follow that I just read, verses 10 through 13, Jesus speaks of the issue of stewardship. All that we have has been given to us. By whom? That is the crucial question. If it is by God, then stewardship is serving the one who has given all. On the other hand, if we don't think in those terms, then in fact we may end up serving that which has been given to us. That is, we serve the gift rather than the one who has given. As I read this parable, I find that the issue of self-interest is central. That is, that the dishonest manager makes decisions, he's made decisions and continues to make decisions that will benefit him and him alone, not the master. It may be that the focus of the parable is more general than I've suggested. That, in fact, what Jesus is doing is addressing the reality that Israel, the people of God, had been given so many things by God. And one day they will be called to give an account. There will be, in fact, a judgment. But in order to maintain their positions, they have strategically made certain decisions. They've made certain deals that have allowed them to continue. Self-interest is what is at play, whether it's for the individual or for the community or the nation. And so we find basically the temple in the lifetime of Jesus is desecrated every day 
because the Sadducees have made a deal with the Romans and the, the golden eagle is out in front of the temple and in the morning and the evening they make a sacrifice for the emperor. In other words, they cut a deal so that they can continue. Just like this dishonest manager cut deals so that when he gets fired, he'll have a place to go and work. Well, that's where we ended last week at verse number 13. Before we get to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we have to look at what comes in between. Verses 14 through 18. Follow along if you would as I read. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to draw out of the, drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. On the face of it, these verses seem out of place. They don't seem to have any connection to what comes before or what comes after. But in fact, I think they are, they are precisely where they should be. They are both a response to the parable of the dishonest manager as well as a context for the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Certainly verse number 14 could be understood that way because we have the Pharisees who love money. And so we have rich man and we have a dishonest man. That sort of makes sense. But what about verses 15 through 18? We'll come to that. But we're told something rather strange in verse number 14. It's repeated in a different way in verse number 15. The Pharisees loved money. How do we reconcile this with what we know about the Pharisees who were strict observers of the law? The Pharisees were a sect that had begun uh, during the Second Temple period. This is after the exile. And they were distinguished by their strict observance of the law, both what was written in the Mosaic Law and Jewish tradition. And they believed that they were superior to all of the Jews. Indeed, they saw themselves as superior to the people of the land, the unwashed masses, if you wish. But how do you know, or how do you demonstrate that, in fact, you are superior? Through their wealth. You see, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the law, a cursory reading points to the fact that wealth is a sign of God's favor. God promised prosperity if, in fact, they would be faithful to keep his law. So if you look at verse number 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. Basically, they're saying we love money because money is a sign of God's favor and we have God's favor. And therefore, look at us. We are God's favorites, so to speak. The reality is, as Jesus says, God knows your hearts. What is there is a love of money rather than a love of God. And so something is seriously wrong. So Jesus told them, we saw that in verse number 13, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees valued the gift more than they did the giver. Okay, that's fine. Well, what about what follows in verses 16 through 18? As Jesus sees that the message of the Old Testament, what he calls the law and the prophets, were proclaimed all the way up to the coming of the time of John the Baptist. And from that time on, the message did not change necessarily, but what we find is that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, was being proclaimed. 
So far, so good. But then Jesus goes on to say, and everyone is forcing their way into it. I must confess, for me, this is a difficult saying, and there are a number of interpretations to it. But in the context, what I see Jesus is saying is that, okay, we have the law and the prophets given to the Jewish people, to Israel, and now we have John the baptizer, we have Jesus, who are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and people who are Jews are like, well, we follow this, well, we should get a free pass. We should just be allowed to come into the kingdom. We shouldn't have to do anything. In a sense, they are forcing their way in. Uh, no requirements in their minds for admission. They should simply be allowed to come in because they are Jews. Um, this is not the case. And in fact, what is wrong is that they do not really understand the law and the prophets. They do not understand what God intended, that it goes beyond a sense of self-righteousness. And it is interesting, of all the things that Jesus could mention, he mentions the issue of divorce in verse number 18. In Deuteronomy 24, we're told that a man could divorce his wife because he found something indecent about her. Now, what that means, I think, is open to interpretation. And at least for the Pharisees, they interpreted it in such a broad way as to include just about anything that you wanted to. Hillel, and those of you who might be familiar with the uh, Hillel House, that are found at various universities throughout the United States, uh, the Jewish ministry to university students, Hillel thought that if a woman spoiled her husband's dinner, that was grounds for a legal divorce. Because he had found something indecent in her, she had burnt supper, and therefore he could divorce her. Rabbi Akiva, who is a second century A.D. Uh, rabbi, went so far as to say that if a man found a prettier woman, he could divorce his wife because there's something indecent about her because this other woman is prettier. He could divorce his wife and abandon her. This is absolutely an abuse of God's law. Absolutely is. Okay, but what if in fact somebody, a man divorces his wife and then he remarries. Or what if a man marries a divorced woman? Jesus says he's committing adultery. The question is, is there a place for forgiveness? And the answer is, absolutely there is. That's why if you go back to chapter 15 at the beginning, Jesus is seeing hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You see, these people knew they had done wrong. This is what God's law said, and they did something opposite. The Pharisees and the others said, this is what God's law says, and they made it so broad as to include their sin and to justify their wrongdoing. And that's why when Jesus called for them to repent, repent of what? What have we done wrong? Well, what they had done wrong is they had broken God's law. But they want to get into the kingdom of God. They want to get into the kingdom of heaven. They want to force their way in a place where they do not belong. And I think in many ways this is illustrated in the parable that follows, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It begins in verse number 19. It's one of the longer parables uh, that Jesus tells. Follow along, if you would, as I read. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's a familiar parable, but I think it has its share of difficulties, and I trust by God's grace we will learn what Jesus intended. First of all, the two characters in the parable, um, they're marked by contrast. The first is the rich man who dressed or was dressed in purple and linen and lived in luxury every day. As with most parables, this character is not named. We're not given a name. We're simply, he is simply described as a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen. Such clothing was usually reserved for royalty or for what we might call the nouveau riche, those who wanted to show off that they had money, they dressed as though they were royalty. Purple was expensive because the dye came uh, from a particular shellfish and you had to get a bunch of them, obviously, to produce the dye. And so it was a very expensive way of dressing. By the way, in verse number 21, there's another indication of his wealth when we are told that Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And we would normally think that here you're talking about when you're eating and you accidentally, you know, food drops to the the floor and that's what Lazarus would eat. But in fact, this isn't what's being said. It was the custom among rich people back then that they did not have napkins to wipe their hands on. They wiped their hands on bread. So if they had food on their fingers, they would wipe it on bread and then they would throw that to the floor. Sort of, look how rich we are. And that's how rich this man was. And this is something that Lazarus was willing to eat because he had no food. The second man in this parable is Lazarus. And as I've said before, he's the only character, the only one in Jesus' parables who is given a name. It is a common enough name. It is a variation on the name Eliezer, uh, which means God is my helper. So there seems to be a certain irony here because one might say without being facetious or blasphemous, if God is your helper, um, maybe you should change helpers because his life situation, his circumstances were so dire. He was a beggar. That is, he had to beg to stay alive. And we are told he is laid at the gate of the rich man, seeming to indicate that someone put him there. He's not able enough on his own. He doesn't have the physical strength To get to the gate, he is actually put there by somebody else. He is covered with sores. By the way, 
It may be that he was put there. It may be that he was actually abandoned there. That someone just sort of dumped him at the gate and said, here, maybe this guy will help you out. He's covered with sores. Um, He doesn't have food to eat. And we are told that the dogs came and licked his sores. Um, Dogs in the New Testament period are not household pets that they are to us today. They are scavengers. They are seeking nourishment. And they are trying to get it by licking this man's sores. Beyond that, the contact with these scavengers meant that Lazarus was unclean. So in the first part of the parable, we are told of these men. One who seemingly has been blessed by God because he is dressed, he's wealthy. He's dressed in purple linen. He has enough to eat and more. And then we have another man who, without being judgmental, seems to be under the judgment of God. Why have these things happened to Lazarus? Why must he beg? Why is he covered with sores? Why has he been abandoned? And yet we see that after they die, the great reversal occurs. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. You'll notice, by the way, we're told nothing about his burial because, in fact, it is more, most likely that he was not buried. It very, we're not told, but the dogs who licked his sores may have, in fact, eaten his body once he died. The rich man also died and was buried. See, in the ancient world, to be buried was extremely important. Um, if you were not buried, it was a sign of God's curse, that God was mad with you. And so when you're buried, this is a sign that you have God's favor and you're waiting for the day of the resurrection. It's interesting if Jesus had reversed the, the phrasing in this verse, if he'd put the second part first and was said that this, the rich man died and was buried, the people listening would say, well, that seems appropriate. After all, is a man under God's favor. Is a rich man. Yes, he would be buried. And then tell us that Lazarus died and was carried to the angels. Then all of a sudden we get a sense that things are not as we think they might be. Let me just say something before we go any further here. Uh, There is some disagreement about this, but I'm not convinced that what Jesus tells us about uh, Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, and the rich man being in a place of torment. um, I don't think that this is what Jesus is saying. This is what happens after we die. I don't think that after we die, we will be with Abraham and we can look across a great chasm and we can see hell. I think Jesus is telling us a story. He's trying to make a point. And what, what he tells us is that Lazarus is in the side, or at the side of Abraham, and the picture is that of a banquet. Think of John chapter 13 in the Last Supper. We are told that John, the beloved disciple, was at the side of Jesus. And this is where Lazarus is. He is in a position of honor next to Abraham, reclining next to him at the great banquet in the presence of God. What Jesus wants us to see here is a contrast. A contrast, I think, that was shocking to his first listeners. Because the rich man is in a place of torment, and this beggar, who's covered with sores, ends up right next to Father Abraham. The father of the Jewish people, the father of our faith. There's Lazarus right next to him. This is certainly not what people would have expected Again, I think the intent is contrast, not a theology of hell or eternal punishment. I've mentioned this before earlier in the series. We should not read these parables as theologies 
they are the- theological, and we would be would mis- make a mistake to neglect the theology. But I, I don't think we should have the parables do more than what God in, or what Jesus intended for them to do. In this parable, there is at least there are two intents. The first is that Jesus is speaking about a right use of wealth, which ties into what he said earlier. Uh, you cannot love God and mammon. And then the parable of the dishonest manager. The second is the place of God's revelation. I don't think the intent of this parable is to tell us about hell. But before we move on, there's something, there's an issue I find disturbing and something I think we need to consider. Based on what we see, just looking at this parable, one would say that Lazarus was a child of God, to use our language. And the rich man was not. My question, and I find it disturbing, is if Lazarus was a child of God, why did this happen to him? Why was he a beggar? And for me, at least, there are two things that come to mind. The first is from the first parable in in chapter 16, where the manager says, to beg, I am ashamed. I'm ashamed to be a beggar. And yet here is Lazarus. He is a beggar. But then the second thing that comes to mind as I read this is what David wrote in Psalm 37. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And yet here is Lazarus who ends up next to Abraham. He is a beggar willing to eat the food that falls from the table, the bread that the rich man has wiped his fingers on. We also see that he is in wretched physical condition. He's been abandoned. He's covered with sores. And the dogs are licking his sores. All of this would point in the direction of God having judged, if not cursed, this man. And that's why these things have happened to him. Another question that some find disturbing is, did the rich man go to hell because he was rich? And did Lazarus go to uh, to heaven because, in fact, he was poor? Why they ended up where they did, I don't think, is the lesson Jesus is seeking to convey. In light of the reversals we see in the parables, it's tempting to think that. If you're rich in this life, you'll go to hell. If you're poor in this life, then you get to go to heaven. Um, Lazarus was where he was because of the grace of God, not because he suffered in this life, not because he was poor in this life, even though if you look at verse number 25, it might seem to point in that direction, that Abraham says, listen to the rich guy, you know, in your lifetime you had good things and Lazarus didn't. And now he's with me and you are where you are. I think what Abraham is saying is we should not assume that since you had a good life here, you're going to have a good life after death. You shouldn't assume that things just sort of go on the same trajectory. It is interesting to me that in this parable, Lazarus does not speak. Only the rich man does. And on the face of it, his first request seems about self-interest. And it is one that cannot be granted. If you look in verse number 23, um, it 
In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I think the most striking thing in this parable is found in verse number 24. And it wasn't until I was preparing the sermon that someone pointed out that I saw it. I'm familiar with this parable. I'm sure you are as well. But do you notice something there striking in verse number 24? The rich man knew Lazarus's name. Lazarus was not some unnamed anonymous beggar outside his house. The rich man knew him by name. This opens up a whole lot of things for us. In the Old Testament law, God's people were commanded to take care of the poor. We have laws regarding harvesting. Don't do the corner so that the poor can glean. The laws regarding redeeming property sold by those who are in poverty. The laws regarding slavery, when someone sells himself into slavery. And laws regarding generosity. Deuteronomy 15 is interesting in that, at least for me, I get mixed messages. So in verse number four, it says, There need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So God says through Moses to Israel, there is no need for there to be poor people among you. Well, three verses later, he says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, so there will be poor. And then in verse number 11, God says, there will always be poor people in the land. Okay, let me see if I can get this straight. First of all, there's no need for there to be poor people. Secondly, if there are poor people, you should be generous. And thirdly, there will always be poor people in the land. By the way, a verse that is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and John. What is God saying? What, what is he? He seems to be saying more than one thing at the same time. Well, first of all, there is no need for there to be poor because those who have enough should share with those who do not. The reason that there is no need for there to be any poor is because those who have should be generous and should help those who are in need. And that's why I think David could say in in Psalm 37 that he never saw people forsaken or their children begging bread because their neighbors, their friends, their family took care of them. They didn't have to beg. You beg because no one is helping you. But if you follow God's law, you are to be generous. And when you see someone who is in need, you help them out. So in that sense, there should be no Poverty, there should be no, no poor people, there should be no beggars because God's people should be taking care of them. The objection might come though, Damon, there will always be a need. Somewhere, someone will need something. And where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line 
saying, listen, I, I can only do so much that somehow we end up with donor's fatigue, that we're just giving, giving, and giving. Where that line is, I have no idea. I do not know. What I do know is this. The rich man knew Lazarus' name. This means that this poor beggar outside his house, he knew his name. Therefore, he knew his situation. He knew his need and he did nothing. He did nothing to alleviate his poverty. He did not share. He did not give. And he could not claim ignorance. You know, there's so many beggars around. How do I know? He knows Lazarus by name. Second thing that we see from the Deuteronomy passage, and I want to be very careful here, the poverty a person experiences may be the direct result of God's actions. In reading the Psalms this week, I came across the familiar Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their their surging. I think amazing words of comfort. But if you keep reading in Psalm 46, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. The word in Hebrew means horror, the waste, that which God has done. And after the events in the Philippines, this sounds shocking, even repugnant. But we must ask ourselves, who is in control? Are there things that are beyond God's control? If there are, then we have real real reason to be afraid. But in fact, God is in control. And we need to recognize, realize something. That what God has given us in terms of material goods, and that includes our lives, our physical health. The way we are to use these things, how we relate to each other, that we have family, that we have friends. These are all things provided by God. They are a means of grace so that God can take us toward the desired destination. So God has given us these things or taken away things from individuals, but the purpose is the same, that he would get people to go in the direction that he intends and that they would come to have communion with him, which is what he intended with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. And now because of sin has been ruined and God is seeking to reconnect with us. And so it may be that God allows poverty extreme poverty is in the case of Lazarus so that people will cry out to him and see him as the source of things. On the other hand, it may be that God gives wealth and that the reason he gives wealth is so that they will recognize that this is a gift from God. They will recognize that it is not theirs alone that they are in fact to share with those who are in need. Above all, that they are not to serve or love money, the gift They are to serve the giver. And so in Deuteronomy 15, again, this passage that talks about the poor, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. 
I would argue that in this parable, God had taken away from Lazarus his health, his ability to earn a living. He is in extreme poverty. He has to beg. But God has also given wealth to the rich man so that if the rich man would do what the law commands, he would be generous and would take care of Lazarus. That Lazarus would not have to be begged, would not have to beg, and he could be taken care of by physicians and his health restored. It's a wonderful opportunity for this rich man, which he does not take advantage of. The first request is, could you have Lazarus tip his, dip his finger into water and put it on my tongue because I'm in torment. The second request is less, less selfish, but I think it is problematic. Um, if you look at verse number 27, he answered, Then I beg your father, that is to Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You'll notice, by the way, in verse number 27, that the rich man begs Abraham. At the beginning of the story, it is Lazarus who is the beggar, and now it is the rich man who is begging uh, Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them. I don't want them to come here. The implication is that he has five rich brothers who care as little for the poor as he did when he was alive. And he knows they'll end up where he is because of the way they treat those who are in need. But he has a solution. His solution is send Lazarus to warn them. And Abraham says that there's no need. They already have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. It's all there. All they have to do is read Deuteronomy 15 and they will know they should take care of those who are in need. And the rich man says, no, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. If somebody was raised from the dead, they would listen to that person they would repent and they wouldn't do what I done and they wouldn't end up where I am. Like the Pharisees, the rich man wants a sign. He's convinced that if there is a sign, his brothers will repent and they will do what they're supposed to do. And Abraham tells them plainly, no, this isn't going to happen. If they don't listen to the law and the prophets, not, not if anyone rises from the dead. Now, there's a certain irony, or is it a symmetry, that we're told the story of a man named Lazarus in John chapter 11. A man who died. A man who was raised from the dead. And we're told that afterwards, some of them, those who were there at his being raised from the dead, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting on the Sanhedrin. And what was their conclusion? Brothers, we need to repent. Not at all. Jesus must be put to death. So the rich man saying, listen, if Lazarus was raised from the dead, my brothers would believe. Now, Lazarus was raised from the dead in John 11, and the Pharisees did not believe. 
In this parable, I think Jesus is seeking to tell the Pharisees that what he has to say about money, about possessions, is not any different than what you find written down in Moses and the prophets. Not any different at all. And yet when Jesus speaks these parables, we read that in fact the Pharisees scoff. Not at all. It is human nature, I suppose, that we want, we want to dictate the rules. God has revealed himself in the law and the prophets. And the Pharisees take the law and the prophets and they twist them almost to the point of not being recognizable. Can you imagine? The law makes an allowance, and Jesus says it's for the hardest of your heart, that a man, if he found that there was something wrong with his wife, an indecency, and the implication is that there was unfaithfulness in her, then he could divorce her. And somehow, by the time we get to Jesus, that means if she burns your dinner, you can get rid of her. What has happened? Well, God's revelation of who he is has been ignored, and now the Pharisees are rearranging the revelation. The rich man tells Abraham, if, in fact, Lazarus were to be raised from the dead, they would believe. In other words, let me tell you what is the best way for the gospel to be conveyed. And Abraham says, no, that's simply not the case. They already have the law and the prophets, and if they don't listen to them, that is God's revelation. If they don't listen to God's revelation, uh, they're not going to repent. Don't imagine that. I know if you had this spectacular resurrection and Lazarus went to my brothers, and just play the scenario out in your head. If Lazarus, in fact, was raised from the dead and he went back to the brothers and said, listen, I was dead and I was with Abraham and I saw your brother in hell and he sent me back to tell you guys you need to repent. You think that's going to happen? And yet it is human nature. We are like the Pharisees. We want to sign. We want to be able to dictate the terms of our surrender to God's revelation. There's so much more that could be said about this parable what I want to point out is that in both parables in Luke 16, self-interest is at the center of each. The characters, the dishonest manager and the rich man want to be able to call the shots. The dishonest manager comes up with a plan to basically cheat the master so that he has security, job security after he's fired. The rich man lives a comfortable life And then he comes up with a plan to save his brothers. Both men, both men reject what God has revealed in his law. It's all about them. Augustine said something to the effect that the pursuit of private good is what constitutes sin. When we're thinking about me, myself, and I, that's when we're going to get into trouble. What God has done is he has called us to pursue the common good. That is, we are to recognize certain realities. That this is God's world. That God is in control. That God has spoken. 
And that he has called us to repent of our self-centeredness, of it all being about me. And he calls us to serve him. There's a real irony in the fact that God gives us gifts and we become more enamored with the gifts than we do with the giver. And this, the gifts become the thing that we serve. They become our master. Because they allow us to be the center of all things. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray together. Father, even if we're not the case that we live when and where we do, we would still be, I think, very self-centered. But it does not help that our culture panders to us and its advertising and its images. It's all about us. How we can be prettier, happier, wealthier, healthier. And if we're not careful, we even take your word like the Pharisees and twist it to allow us to be the center of all things. Help us to recognize that we are where we are because you put us here. And you have arranged the circumstances of our lives, whether they are good or bad in our eyes. They are for the same purpose, that we might draw close to you and be in communion with you. You made us. You want us to be in fellowship with you. And there's so many things that keep us from that. All things being equal, at least at the beginning of the parable, we'd rather be like the rich man than Lazarus. And yet it is Lazarus who is at the side of Abraham. Help us to see that where we are, where you have put us, our circumstances are your doing. True, it may be because we have sinned, that we have spent our money foolishly, uh, that we have not planned as we should, but you're in control. And you want us to draw close to you. May we not be like the Pharisees, who use their knowledge of the law to twist it to their own advantage and in the end loved money more than you. By your spirit, may we in the days to come think on these, meditate on them, and apply these truths in our lives. May we come to see in a clearer way that our lives are your doing and your ordering. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. We do remember in a special way Aaron and Jen as they plan to move. We ask that you would open doors for them and provide for them. Again, we remember the people in the Philippines who have suffered so much. Thank you for those who have extended a helping hand 
those who have shared, those who have given. We ask by your spirit that whatever interference is in the way would be taken out. Give Pastor Jerry wisdom. We pray for those that have lost their lives, for their families left behind, that you would comfort them. Now I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?